Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Happy Mother's Day to all of you that are mothers. Um, I want to say a hello to all of our campuses that join us here as, uh, as we have worship this weekend. The title of our Ephesians series that we are in and have been in is called Mystery and Clarity. Mystery and Clarity. And I point that out to you because our media guys complain because they do all this work coming up with a catchy concept and then they say that I refer to it one time at the beginning and then never refer to it again. So here's it being referred to again, officially. Um, here's where it comes from. As I was discussing with them what was happening in the book of Ephesians, as I was studying it in preparation for this series, um, they, after I explained to them what was going on, they came up with the title, Mystery and Clarity, which I think is really good, because Ephesians shows you how the deepest mysteries of God, who he is and what he has been up to, mysteries that we sometimes can't even really get our minds around, uh, that we can't explain well, that these very mysteries are the very things that bring clarity to our lives. There's some mystery and clarity. Well, we are nearing the end of this study of Ephesians. Um, not quite to the end yet, but we're getting close. Last week we saw how the world that we live in is toxic to the development of Christian virtue. And what we saw is that if we are going to make it spiritually, then we're going to have to fight tooth and nail. We're going to have to swim upstream, which means that we have to strive to learn and understand God's ways. We've got to strive to bring our hearts in line with his purposes, and that we've got to take active control of our schedules so that we give priority to the things that matter the most. And what I showed you last week is that none of these things, none of these things happen naturally. It certainly doesn't for me, and evidently it didn't happen naturally for Paul, for the people that Paul was writing to. And some of you have been wondering, what's wrong with me? None of this happens natural. It doesn't happen natural for any of us. That's why Paul says it's a fight. It's a war. And if you are not actively fighting this battle, you are losing this battle. So you've got to actively fight it. Well, at the end of Ephesians 5, where we left off last week, Paul is going to give you another very important principle for spiritual growth. And I actually think it's quite fascinating. One of the most fascinating in all the Bible to me. It is something that could change your life. Because it is something that God has put into your life 24-7 to teach you about himself. It's all around you, everywhere. And most of us have no concept that it's even there or the reason that he put it there. All right? And that is, what is that thing that he is going to use to teach us about God that is our relationships? Paul takes three very common relationships, relationships that... Most of you will have, be involved in two, if not all three of these. He takes marriage, he takes the nuclear family, and then he takes work. And he explains that these relationships are like laboratories that God has set up to make you like himself. Laboratories. We've got a lot of medical people that go here to our church. And got a lot of pharmacists, or what we refer to around here as legalized drug dealers. And... Right? You know what I'm talking about. And, 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 and these guys, they use laboratories to work on products until you get them right. That's what a lab is for. Uh, I, I call the first sermon that I preach here on Saturday night my lab sermon. Because what I'm doing is I'm preaching it in a way that's testing out different things to see if they work. And so people on Saturday night know that when I'm in the middle of a the sermon, they will see me pull out my pen and I will mark something out and be like, I am not saying that tomorrow because uh, that totally flopped. Um, but, but the whole idea is I, I, I'm working on it to create it into the masterpiece that you get to hear on Sunday morning. 
right? Well, we, the relationships that you and I are in are laboratories, God's laboratories that he uses to make us into the masterpiece that Ephesians 1 says that he has intended for us. So let me first review a couple of very important truths that we've already learned from Ephesians, which undergird what I'm going to tell you today. These are so important that if you don't remember these or get these, you're going to not really understand how I'm going to walk us through the, these relationships. Here's important principle number one. God's main purpose for us, we learned in Ephesians 1, is Christ's likeness. God's main purpose is Christ's likeness. Ephesians 1.12 says that his primary purpose in salvation was to make us into people that would bring him glory. And we would do that by becoming like him in every way. We would imitate him. We would resemble him. We would in every way be his sons and his daughters, loving what he loves, reacting like he reacts, looking like him. That is a process that theologians call sanctification. Now, I know sanctification is a big, scary, religious-sounding word, but all it really means is making like God. The process of sanctification is making you like God. Second, we learn that God is sovereign, which means that nothing is outside of his control, and he uses all things in our lives for that purpose, for that purpose. Ephesians 1.11 says, quote, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. To accomplish, verse 11 says, his purpose in our lives. And what was that purpose? What was it? Put it back up there. Remember this? It was Christ-likeness. I'm going to need a lot more spots in that. I'm just going to throw that out right now, okay? What was that purpose? Christ-likeness. So God is using all things in your lives for one purpose. Nothing is outside of his control. He's using all things for one purpose, and that purpose is Christ-likeness. Now, in chapters 5 and 6, he applies those two truths, that he's in control of everything and his purpose is Christ-likeness. He applies those to our relationships and shows us something fascinating, and that is that in the most basic of human relationships, God is sovereignly at work like a scientist in a laboratory making us like himself. If you write stuff down, jot this down. Here's the thesis. God uses our relationships to teach us about himself and to make us like himself. If you don't understand his purpose or you don't understand the breadth of his control, you're not going to get that. So I went over those two truths. When you understand that, here's what he's going to show you. God uses our relationships to teach us about himself and to make us like himself. He's going to go through three examples. And we're going to spend most of our time on the first one. And then we're just going to have time to touch on the other two. More important than the actual examples that I'm going to give you is the principle behind these examples. And that principle, again, is that God is using our relationships to teach us about himself and to make us like himself. Okay? You with me? Enough intro. Let's get into the first one. Marriage. Marriage, all right? Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Because he who loves his wife is really loving himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother. This is a quote from Genesis 2, verse 25. Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, because I am saying that this actually refers to Christ and the church. In other words, God gave marriage. Get this, get this. God gave marriage to teach us about his love for us. Y'all, it's not even that God looked at marriage after he had made it and thought, man, that's a great example of how, you know, I love people, so let me, like, use this as an analogy to help them understand. That's not how it went down. God actually gave us something for the sole intention of, let me use this to teach them about my love for them. God made it. God designed it, marriage, to teach us about himself. Now, you say, how? At least three ways. How is it that marriage teaches us about God three ways? I'm going to give you. Let's start with the most fun, and then we'll work our ways to the most painful. Okay? Number one, number one, in the delights of marriage, we get a taste of the beauty of God. In the delights of marriage, we get a taste of the beauty of God. Husband, if you're here with your wife and it's Mother's Day, that would have been a really good time for you. You'd be like, mm, yes, that's truth, okay? So now you know next time what to do. Verse 32. Verse 32 tells us that. C.S. Lewis said uh, about 50 years ago, an analogy I use here quite a bit, he said that marriage to him was like a ray of sunshine that shined upon his face, that when the ray hits your face, you don't just focus on the ray, you look back up along the ray to the source. He said, that's the way marriage is to me. It is a ray of the sunshine of God's love. All he was doing was really summarizing what Jonathan Edwards had said 400 years ago when Jonathan Edwards says that marriage is the ray, God's love is the sun. Marriage is the symbol, God's love is the reality. Marriage is the stream, God's love is the ocean. And in experiencing the beauty and the love of marriage, what I am getting is a taste of the beauty and love of God. That's why God gave it to me. Because he wanted me to be able to taste and to feel and to sense his love in a very tangible way. It is the love of God that is pictured in marriage that makes marriage so beautiful. It's why so many people cry in weddings. So you girls, if you cry in weddings, or you guys, if you watch the wedding channel and you get all teared up when you're watching the wedding channel, this is why. This is why. You may not know it even. In fact, a lot of people don't realize this because a lot of people have no interest in God at all, but marriages are beautiful to them because whether they realize it or not, what they're experiencing in that moment is a little picture of God's love, God's type of love, and that's what makes it beautiful. Marriage pictures a love that every human being was created for. It is a love where two human beings become one. Literally, sexually, there is a, a fusion of bodies. It is a love that is exclusive because, because she is completely mine and I am completely hers. It is a love that is unconditional. Every human being, as I've explained to you before, every human being has the desire to be known and loved. Right? We want to be known and loved. You can't have one without the other and, and, and have real love because if you're known but not loved, that's rejection. Right? If somebody really knows you and doesn't love you, they've rejected you. But if somebody loves you and doesn't really know you, that's just superficiality 
And so we have a desire as human beings to be known and loved, but that leaves us with a dilemma, doesn't it? Because when people actually know us, they don't want to love us. Because we human beings have what we call the porcupine's dilemma. Right? You know, porcupines need love too. Porcupines want to be close. They want to snuggle. They want a spoon. They got 25,000 poisonous quills. And so what does a porcupine do when it's time to, to get up close to another porcupine? It's like I can't get you close without lacerating you. And human beings have that same issue. Well, marriage is a picture of being known and loved because I know you. I know your flaws. I know your weaknesses and I love you and it is beautiful that is shadowed in marriage. But the reality that it points to is beyond itself to the love of God. And I know we got people here that you're like, I'm not really interested in God, but yeah, there's something about marriage that moves you. That's why. It is whispering in your heart and calling out to you for a love that you were created for. And this is so very important, what I'm about to say. You cannot let marriage, excuse me, you should let marriage teach you about God's love, but you cannot let marriage replace God's love in your life. When that happens, when you begin to look at the ray of the sunshine as if it were the sun itself, you will find that it is insufficient to sustain the weight that your soul puts on it, or you'll try to get too much from it. I occasionally do, um, do marriage counseling. I used to do a lot more, but not as much now. But um, in the times that I have done marriage counseling, the number one reason that marriages go wrong, in my humble but accurate opinion, okay, the, the number one reason that marriages go wrong is that rather than learning about God through our spouse, we replace God with our spouse, or at least we try to. We start to look for a security, a love, and a fulfillment in our spouse that we really ought to have found in God. Best I've ever heard this described was in a book written by a girl named Angela Thomas called Am I Beautiful? Questions Every Woman Asks. And I know the question that every one of you is asking is, why have you read this book, okay? <laughs> Which is a question I will not answer now or ever, okay? She says, quote, let me, let, me, let me read it to you. Quote, here is one thing I can say with great confidence. The man that you love is just a man. He may be your soulmate. He is possibly your best friend. He may be studly and funny and surprising and strong. You're like, was this written by Veronica? No, 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 no. <laughs> It wasn't. But he will never, not in a million years, not if he goes to relationship therapy twice a week and keeps every promise written, he will never be enough to fill your soul. He will never make you whole. He wasn't made to be enough. He could not be even if he tried. He is just a man. And he can give only as a man and interact as a man and love as a man. He wasn't designed to feel the depth of a woman's longings, to anticipate every need, to jump through every hoop. He can't. Those deep places inside you were made for God. The man is simply a vessel. God uses him to give you a part of the filling of his holy love. But he's not the only vessel, nor is he able to fill you from his own strength. Nor is he the only thing you will ever need. I don't care what the Backstreet Boys said. It wasn't true. There will never be a man on the face of the earth who can make you whole. Being filled in the depths of your soul is only about the love of God. Knowing him, hearing his voice, believing that he is wild about you. Dancing in his arms. Wives and prospective wives. 
Your identity cannot be based on what he thinks about you. Your identity is always formed by the most important person in your life, what they think about you. He cannot be that person. He can be a shadow of that person, but he cannot be the actual one who is the most important. Husbands, you cannot look primarily to her for affirmation, for happiness, for security. You cannot look to someone else to do what only God can do. When you look to someone in the place of God, they will disappoint you. The way I explain this a lot in premarital counseling is I say, here you got a guy who is floating in a sea of loneliness and insecurity and despair. He's just drowning in his own, you know, kind of insecurities. And along by, hallelujah, Jehovah Jireh, along by flows a five-foot-two blonde-headed life preserver. <laughs> oh, salvation from my insecurity. And he grabs a hold of her. And he sucks the life out of her because she was not designed to rescue him from that ocean. I can say this as a happily married man who married way over his head. Nobody really argues about that. <laughs> that lonely, insecure, obsessive single people become lonely, insecure, obsessive married people. Because problems like loneliness, insecurity, and all those things are never cured by another human being. They're cured by God. If you cannot be happy as a single person, you will not be happy as a married person, so you might as well give it up, all right? You do not need a relationship with a perfect man. You need a relationship with a gracious God. That's what you're looking for. Here is number two. Number two, in the roles of marriage, we get a picture of the image of God. In the roles of marriage, we get, we get roles in marriage, we get a picture of the image of God. Now, warning, this is deep, very and highly controversial, okay? Fools rush in, here we go. What we learn from Genesis is that man and woman are both created in the image of God, but differently, and this is what Paul is reminding them of in this passage, that they are different on purpose to reveal different aspects of the image of God. When God looked at man in the Garden of Eden and he said, hmm, man is alone, that is not good. He didn't fix that problem by creating somebody exactly like the man because that would have been not good, not good, okay? Twice not good. So what he did is he created something that complemented the man that completed what was left out. Each of the man and woman is created differently to reveal a complementary aspect of the image of God. And when the two come together in marriage, you get a fuller picture of the image of God than you do when one is alone. Verse 23, look at that. It says, the husband plays the role of the head of the wife, like Christ is the head of the church and is himself its savior, which means he is to lead her like God leads his people. And in leading her, she gets to experience what God's leadership is like, like a ray of the sun. She gets to experience something of God in his leadership, and you, the man, get to experience what it's like to love and to lead like God. When you study Genesis you find that there are at least four ways that man was clearly designated to be the leader in that relationship. I go back to Gen you don't have to go but turn back to Genesis 2. Let me just walk you back through it. Genesis 2, the first thing you see is that he was to be a leader in provision. Right? Before woman was ever created, man has a job in the garden. He's working, and she is brought into that relationship where he is working and, and producing fruit from the gardens. In other words, he has a job. Girls, are you hearing this? He can't hold down a job. 
He's a bad student. Stay away from him. You don't want to be living with him in his mama's basement, sleeping on Star Trek sheets when you're 40. <laughs> right? If that stings some of you, it probably needs to. I always think sometimes when I say things, different people will get up and walk out, you know, and I always wonder, like, does this mean they're mad at what I said? I don't think anybody would walk out during that moment right there. Just be like, oh, I'm mad about that, but I'm going to wait for a minute. Um, <laughs> number two, he leads spiritually. He leads spiritually. When the woman is created, the man already has a relationship to God, and she is brought into it. You ever notice that? The commands given about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had already been given to man. And evidently, the man was supposed to tell her what those commands were and to lead her in obeying them. The man is to lead the woman spiritually. Paul reminds them of that here, verse 26. He says to the husband, it's your role, husband, to help your wife live faultless before God. I have to lead my family in a way that doesn't lead my wife to materialism or self-sufficiency or pride or apathy or gossip. God holds me responsible for that. Y'all, when I first got married, I thought I was supposed to have no secrets in my marriage. And, and that's true. But I thought that what that meant was I was just supposed to tell my wife everything I thought about everybody. I'm like, hey, you know, we're married. This is the one place where the no gossiping rule doesn't apply. I'm just being honest about my feelings. But here's the problem, right? That didn't change the fact that I was revealing a, a genuine lack of love for other people and a genuine pride, which is never okay. And even worse, I was leading and causing my wife to think bad thoughts about others as I gossiped to them about them to her. I have to answer to God for that. God holds me responsible for that. I have to help protect her heart and shepherd her heart like Tony Evans, the African-American preacher, says, spiritual headship is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man. <laughs> God holds me responsible for the spiritual temperature in my family. Number three, we see that he led in romance. He led in romance. The first human words recorded in the Bible were that of the man composing a love poem about his wife, Genesis 2.26. The man says, after woman is created, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You say, well, that doesn't sound that romantic. He's seen a naked woman for the first time ever. Cut him some slack, okay? <laughs> he didn't have time to come up with several revisions of that poem. But in Hebrew, it is clear this is poetry. It is a song. Better yet, it is a love song. Girls, he is supposed to take the lead in relationships. You're like, well, is it wrong for a girl to ask a guy out? Well, put it this way. If he doesn't have the spine to ask you out, he's probably not going to lead in romance the rest of your life. Fair? So if a guy isn't man enough to ask my daughter out, I don't expect he's going to be man enough to lead her spiritually either. I'm just free from Uncle J.D. That's all I'm going to say, all right? Number four, in sacrifice. In sacrifice, here in Ephesians, you see that he is the lover like Christ loves the church, which is not in any way a domineering, let me control you and use you <coughs> kind of leadership, but the kind of leadership that puts her needs above his own. The kind of leadership that comes not to be served, but to serve, like Jesus. The kind of leadership that is the first to forgive 
and the first to absorb wrongdoing and the first to respond with grace. We'll come back to that. But the point is, in these four ways, husband, this is what you should hear. Your wife learns about God from you. And you are supposed to learn to be like God as you love her and lead her. And if you can just let me say this really quickly, I have a real burden for this. We want men to lead at this church. That's what we want. Our church is a great church, and this doesn't apply to all of you, but our church is like many other churches in that it is the women who seem to be much more engaged spiritually than the men. And I realize that families turn around. I realize that communities change when men take that leadership role that God has gave, given them. You go back to Genesis, you find that the mess we got ourselves in came from men not leading spiritually. I know that when you begin to lead in your homes, men, you will find that the whole temperature of everything changes. We want you to lead. And we're trying to figure out ways to call you up into that. That's what we want to do. Yeah, we, I, our children's pastor told me this week, we, we just did this little study thing, and we figured out that for most kids that come here um, to our church, if they come the whole year, we will have them a total of 40 hours. That's how long we will have them as a church. The family, you fathers, will be in the presence of your children 3,000 hours. I can't fix your kid in 40 hours. See? You, if we can get you to lead them in those 3,000 hours, then these 40 hours just become a partnership. They become complementary to you. We want you to lead spiritually. All right? So some of you need to stop being deadbeats and be the leaders that God designed you to be. Happy Mother's Day. All right? <laughs> Wife. Wife, what is your role? You are to play the role of the church. How is the woman like the church? Y'all ready for this? I need some encouragement. <laughs> Verse 24. The wife is like the church in that she submits. You're like, uh-uh. No, he didn't. Yes, he did, Okay. And I checked in to make sure this podium is bulletproof. <laughs> she submits, which means, A, she surrenders her ambitions to his. She surrenders her ambitions to his. See how verse 23 says the man is the head? It says that she, in the same way, ceases to be the head of her own life. That means she ceases to build her own kingdom and yields herself to building her husband's and her family's kingdom. You know, this is my wife. My wife, she is in many ways smarter than me. She graduated at a better university. She had a higher SAT score. But she has given up any visions of her own kingdom to live for my kingdom and to live for the kingdom of my family. Let me make this clear because I don't want to overspeak. The Bible is not against women in careers. But it is against those who do so at the expense of their families. This submission, B, means that she surrenders her will to his. Many of you are like, well, I'd submit if he'd grow up. My husband is such an idiot. I mean, last time I went to my sister's house, he almost sold our house for some magic beans. I can't submit to that. He'd drive us into the ground. Two thoughts. I only have time for two thoughts. Number one, if you only submit to your husband when you agree with him 
That's not submission, that's agreement. All right? Submission implies that you don't agree. Otherwise, it's not submission. And don't agree means that you think he's making a wrong decision. That's the only time you get to apply this verse. Number two, the reason that some of you don't have a husband who will take leadership is because you've always done it. You have a pastor, if I don't, somebody, nobody will. My challenge to some of you is, yeah, let that create a leadership vacuum and watch what that does to your husband. Because when that mantle of leadership falls on on his shoulders, sometimes the weight of that changes him. One of our associate pastors, Rick Langston, and I were talking this weekend. Many of you that are newer to our church don't know this story, but back eight, nine years ago, there was a real power struggle in our church. There was a group of people who were deacons, and the deacons at the church had, um, over time, begun to become like a, a, a power structure that, that would, were there to kind of veto what the pastors um, wanted to do and where the, you know, the church wanted to go. It was almost like they were Congress or something. And uh, I wasn't on staff at this time, so it's not personal for me. Um, but deacons in the Bible are supposed to be servants. And so there was this kind of power struggle of who's going to lead and, and who's going to do what. And one of the deacons, Rick was telling me this, I was actually there at this meeting. I wasn't as the pastor, but I was sitting in this meeting. One of the deacons stood up and he said, clearly the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to serve this church, not rule this church. God has given us leaders, he's given us pastors, and we're supposed to, unless they violate scripture, we're supposed to follow them. And so even if I disagree with some of the things they're going to they're gonna lead us in, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to say, leadership falls on your shoulders, not mine, and you've got to answer to God for that. Rick said that when he said that, it was said it was almost as if I was crushed with a weight, understanding that God was going to hold me responsible for how we led this church, and simply having the mantle of leadership placed on my shoulders changed me as a pastor. What I'm saying is that for many of you, that same thing would happen to your husband. If you said, I'm not going to lead because that's your role right there, you would find that sometimes just the weight of that will bring transformation to him. Many of you have passive husbands because you've always stepped in and taken leadership. Now, men, I just remind you, for us, that leadership is never to dominate. I'm to lead like Christ. I want to lead her in such a sacrificial way that submitting to her, submitting to me, is a delight for her and not a burden. I tell my wife, I want her submission to me to be like her submission to the temptation to chocolate. (laughs) Give in, let go, right? This is the most enjoyable submission that you'll ever encounter. I want to lead my my wife in a way that independence for me would be a burden. Here is the point. Men and women were created differently to reveal complementary aspects of the image of God. Y'all, it's not that men are superior. It's just that the roles we play are different. It's not that women are superior. Neither is superior. It's just the roles that are given are different so that when the two are doing the different roles, we can more accurately see and learn about God. Y'all, and when you tear down that distinction as our culture is done, you remove something so very important that God intended to use to teach us about himself. Which is why as our society has thrown this off, it has produced unparalleled harm in our homes and in our children. You can trace, you can trace the increase of crime, and by the way, I'm not even using preacher statistics here, okay? These are real ones. You can trace 
You can trace the increase of crime, dropout rates, teen pregnancy, suicide rates, homosexuality, and a number of other things to when our society formally rejected the biblical understanding of family. I'm not speaking politically here. Okay, I'm just saying that when this idea of what the Bible had called the man and the woman to, when we lost that, when the radical feminist revolution really began to take over. Let me also make this clear. Part of that revolution was awesome and needed. All right? And a lot of it tore down some of these, the, 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 these, these prejudices and stereotypes. And that was good. Women uh, recognizing the equality of women, that was good. But it went too far in that it tore down any distinctions and said the only differences between men and women were the plumbing. And that is not true. Lots of parts of you are different to reveal different dimensions of the image of God. And we ignore that and we dismiss that at our peril. And I would say the stats prove that pretty abundantly. Here's number three. In the forgiveness required in marriage, in the forgiveness required in marriage, we get a taste of the grace of God. In the forgiveness required in marriage, we get a taste of the grace of God you know, the biggest learning curve in marriage, I have found, is how much you disappoint each other in that first year of marriage. That's why I always say that I've been married for eight wonderful years. We've actually been married for ten, but two of them were awful. And the other eight were pretty good, and the other eight were wonderful. When you think, here's what the problem is, you think you're marrying somebody perfect. And then you get married, and you're like, wow. How did they keep that hidden while we were dating? How did I not see that? And a lot of people get really disappointed. And then they divorce. And they even feel justified because they're like, hey, you were supposed to make me happy. You didn't keep up your end of the contract, so I don't need to keep up my end either. You didn't make me happy, and so I'm leaving. But here's the question. What if God's main intention in marriage was not to make you happy by giving you a perfect mate? Y'all, if that had been God's intention, he would have had us marry angels. I like it. Some newlywed, some newlywed guy says, I did marry an angel. Shut up, okay? No, you didn't. You married a sinner. And unless they are virgin born, chances are they got some deep dysfunction. And if you don't know that yet, have a good next year, okay? <laughs> Enjoy. What if God's intention in marriage is what Paul says it is, and that is to make you like Jesus? And what if in marriage he gives you a chance to be up close to a sinner, to see all their faults, so you can learn how Jesus loves you and learn to love others that way. And men, this is the primary place that you are supposed to lead. You want to know what your crown is that you're wearing? This is the one. Verse 25, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Guys, you ever stop to think about what that really means? To love your wife like Christ loves the church? Usually, we just think that that means we're sensitive and thoughtful and bring home flowers from time to time. Is that really? That's how Christ loved the church? He was thoughtful? To quote C.S. Lewis, quote, the husband who embodies this verse is the one whose marriage most feels like a crucifixion. It is the husband whose wife receives most and gives the least. It is the one whose wife is most unworthy of him. 
who is in her own mere nature the least lovable. For the church has no beauty but what the bridegroom gives to her. Jesus does not find but makes the church lovely. Y'all, there's that moment in every wedding when the wife almost said storms in, but that's not what I'm trying to say. She enters into the place. It's like a storm. It's like everybody turns and looks, you know, and it's, and in that moment, in that wedding, I get a lump in my throat, and it's usually not because of how beautiful the woman is. If I've done your wedding, no offense. Um, <laughs> sorry. In the corner of my eye right here, I'm seeing somebody did their wedding recently. Um, it's usually not because of how beautiful she is, though she is indeed beautiful as they come through the, that door. It's because suddenly I remember usually in that moment, that here is a woman that is beautifully dressed, purity, just what an incredible, what an incredible beauty that she's coming through. And I remember that in the wedding that this one is supposed to picture, when I came into that ceremony, I was not perfect and spotless and beautiful. I was deformed and scarred and used and had sold and given myself to sin so many times that I came through as if I were the worst possible woman alive. And Jesus stood there as the perfect bridegroom. He did not find me lovely. He made me lovely. You picture that in marriage. You help your spouse become lovely. How did Jesus do that? How did Jesus make me lovely? How do you, look, at, look at verse 25, it shows you. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might present the church to himself, holy and without blemish. How did he sanctify her? By absorbing her sin when we wronged him. You help your spouse become holy, not by punishing them for their sin or paying them back, but by giving them radical grace. Right? I mean, when our spouses have a problem, when my wife has a blemish in marriage, our way to correct that is usually to try and fix them. And we'll pay them back. This was like my entire first year of marriage. I'm going to confront my wife and argue her back into godliness. This is clearly what you're doing wrong, and I'm here to be God's tool of sanctification. And I'm going to pay you back and teach you to love God. They wronged you, so you will yell at them and you'll correct them. But that's not how Jesus changed you, is it? Jesus didn't change you by paying you back for your sin. He changed you by absorbing the effects of your sin into himself. And seeing his grace awoke in me a love for him that completely changed my heart. God uses marriage to a sinner to put me in a relationship where I can give that kind of grace to my spouse. And I can experience that kind of grace from her. That means whenever my wife disappoints me or hurts me, I can lash out. I can pay her back. Or I can experience God's greater purposes in my life. Even in her unfairness. Her rudeness was sovereignly appointed by God. Part of the all things of Ephesians 1.11. It was sovereignly appointed by God to teach me what I am like to God to teach me how much he's forgiven me of and to give me a chance to learn to love like him. That doesn't excuse them for what they're doing. I mean, it's not like, you know, they, 
They're going to answer to God for their actions. They can't be like, yep, I'm only being rude because God wants me to be a tool of your sanctification. No, they're going to answer to God for that. But I'm saying I can understand that even in that, God has a purpose for me. I'm also not saying that when you're being wronged, you just stand there and you take it. Right? I mean, you correct them. And one of the best examples of this, but when you correct them, it's not to pay them back, it's because you love them and you know what their behavior is doing to them and what it's doing to your relationship. And so in love, without trying to pay them back, you correct them. One of the best pictures ever given to us of this was Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about turning the other cheek. I've explained this to you before, but just in case you, you missed it, here, here it is. When Jesus talked about turning the other cheek, a lot of times we miss what he was saying because we think it means you just stand there and you keep taking it. You know, you know, here I got another one. You know, I mean, it's no. If he had meant that, he would have said, turn the same cheek to them. The person, get this, the person who is attacking you in Jesus' little, you know, turn the other cheek thing, is not trying to actually kill you. Because if so, you don't go for somebody's cheek. Like martial arts people would never tell you, hey, you want to bring some real damage? The cheek. No, the, per, it, it, the cheek in the Jewish understanding was the symbol of relationship, the face. So when somebody smacked your cheek, they had insulted the relationship. That's what they'd done. He says, you turn the relationship back to them. And you offer to restore the relationship. You may have to confront their wrong, but you do so without going after their cheek. You do so by reestablishing and reoffering this relationship. What that means is that when I'm wronged in marriage or wherever, yes, sometimes I confront, I say, look, this is destructive, it's hurting you, but I don't do it in a way of getting their cheek back. I'm not giving them the silent treatment, I'm not yelling at them. I'm saying, yes, this is destructive for you, but I'm going to re-offer you grace. This is exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He confronted the sin. He called for repentance, but he offered us not judgment, he offered us grace. He says, you love like that. You look, I, I can hear your thought. You're going to be like, wow. Do you live this, J.D.? Sometimes. <laughs> Especially during those weeks that I'm preaching on marriage. <laughs> Done some really great things for my wife this week, and she was like, you're preaching on marriage again, aren't you? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so you see, in these three ways, marriage is given to us to be God's laboratory for teaching us about himself. That's relationship one. There are two more, which I'm just going to have to completely punt. If you really want to hear them, okay, uh, which I'm, I'm sorry because we, I'm completely done with time. If you really want to hear them, last night at the Saturday service, I got through all of them. Um, so if you will, I will put that online and you can go back and hear because I talk about children and parents and talk about if you work for a slave master, literally. Um, so uh, talk about how you're supposed to be at work. Uh, I'd love to get into that today, but... Um, it really would, yeah, sorry. Go online, summonrdu.com. Where do I end this? Okay. All your relationships are given to you to teach you about God. Christian growth takes place when the beauty and glory of this one God that you have come to know so captures your heart that it transforms all your relationships, everything you do, so that even the most mundane becomes a way to serve him and to be like him and to know him and it gives you purpose in everything i wish again if i'd have gotten into the other relationships christians are used to what we call the sacred and secular split sacred is what happens in here secular is what happens out there this is where god lives that's where you know we live 
what Paul shows you is there is no sacred and secular split. Everything is spiritual. How you act and respond to an unjust boss at work, how you respond to your parents, how you respond to your children, how you respond to your spouse, how you respond everywhere, ultimately, is a response first and foremost to God. So even Jesus Christ, when he stands before Pilate, the most unjust judge of all, doesn't respond to him, he responds to God. Because God is sovereign, and in every situation, I'm not responding to my spouse, I'm not responding to my boss, I'm not responding to my parents, I am responding to God. That's what you got to hear from this. Always respond to God. When my boss treats me unfairly, I'm like, hey, I'm not working for you, I'm working for God, so I'm going to do a good job whether you deserve it or not. When my parents, when I was a kid, I obey my parents because I'm submitting to God. It's all a response to God. And when you get that, when you get that, it gives you purpose to every part of your life. The pressing question is, do you know this God that has created in you such a passion for change? A God that is better than any other earthly reality you've ever found. A God that gives purpose to every part of your life. A God that has always been there in your life and is the real answer to all the questions that you've been asking. If not, you can know him today by receiving Jesus Christ, his son, as Lord and Savior. Christianity is simply believing that God has paid for all your sins in Jesus and receiving that and surrendering to him as God and the Lord of your life. If you've never done that, you can do it today. So let me get all of us, if I would, at all of our campuses, if you will, just bow your heads. If you, right now, are one of those ones that, when I say, has God become a part of your life, you know that I'm talking to you. If you've never put your trust in Christ as Savior, you can do that right now by saying to him in your own words, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin. I receive that gift. I surrender to you as my Savior. Say it to him in your own words. I surrender to you as my Savior and I receive that gift. Change my life, Jesus. Say it to him. God, I pray for those today that will join those from last night who are putting their trust in Christ. I pray that today would be a life-changing moment for them Lord begin this work in them that you will complete into the day of Jesus Christ we give you praise we love you Lord Jesus in Christ's name amen